I often say that addiction is the result of not knowing how to find safety inside of yourself. So you find it in something else and understandably you get hooked on it because you're desperate for safety. That's all you're guilty of. Any of you looking to learn more about supporting addiction recovery through a trauma-informed and somatic lens and a nutritional lens, please join me for my addiction circle. This is a bi-monthly, entirely free, virtual circle that I invite anyone here to come and join if they want more information. Addiction tends to be so steeped in shame, and I find that doing this work in a community of people helps to destigmatize that shame so you can see how not alone you are in the experience. So whether you are personally withdrawing, preventing, experiencing relapse, or you work with people who are actively addicted or in recovery, all are welcome. The next addiction circle is Tuesday, July 2nd at 4 p.m. EDT. This meeting is not recorded for the sake of anonymity. No registration is necessary. Just join through the link below. On today's episode, we speak about a very popular personality disorder, the narcissist, and how narcissism is actually a response to unprocessed, unresolved trauma. Really, the original addiction is narcissism. It's really the foundation. After that, human beings struggle with narcissism, and then they're addicted to other human beings, and then they go on to use substances or, or, or behavioral addictions, hoarding, whatever, you know. Compulsion. It's always a compulsion, some type of compulsion. It doesn't matter if it's hoarding or gambling or workaholic or whatever the compulsion is. It's an addiction. It's meant to soothe because there's emotional pain, because the person does not have secured, attached relationships with other human beings. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I'm your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music. And then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations. And learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences, as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now. Today, I welcome back April Harder. She's a licensed clinical social worker, and she has founded the Racism Recovery Center in Colorado. Her specialty is the link between racism and narcissism and how it's an addiction. And I was very interested to have her on about this subject because I don't hear many other people talking about it the way she does. The it I'm referring to is narcissism. 
and the root the the root even to the word narcissist which is narc means to numb so narcissism is a action a response a reflex to numb ourselves of pain and as you'll hear in this interview there are so many different ways narcissistic tendencies or narcissistic actions or responses get expressed we tend to think of narcissism as some big you know arrogant man that's manipulating everybody but it's much more nuanced than that and it's much more complex and if we don't humanize the narcissist and learn how to understand what's really happening we just polarize another human being shame them and cancel them out of our culture leaving the problem to fester somewhere else in the darkness i'm inspired by april's work because she works to go to the root of racism and any other kind of hate crimes or any other kind of addictive behavior that causes other people to be emotionally or physically abused and the root is always unprocessed trauma april thank you for coming back on so good to be back yeah it's good to see you so what we're talking about today is narcissism mm-hmm. your 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 experience of it how you classify it how you see it um i remember from our last talk and if you haven't heard our last talk go to part 1 i think it's um episode either episode 3 or 4 go to part 1 racism recovery april gave a beautiful uh two and a half hour generous interview about her work and it's it's been eye opening for thousands of people actually um what i'm curious about from that that really hit me was the narcissism as a defense mechanism as unprocessed trauma response and it helps me which i i already intuitively felt narcissists i'm doing quotes i always felt them i always saw them in a more compassionate lens mm-hmm. than than we tend to paint the picture because it's a much wider mm-hmm. scope than like the arrogant dictator mm-hmm. and so so many people it, it's the most it's the most highly used word amongst all people you know uneducated educated everyone just loves this person's narcissist i was married to a narcissist it's so very, wanted, trendy. Mm-hmm. very trendy very trendy it's viral mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's like I wanted you to tell us how you see it because there's a whole the much greater depth of the root of the word and how it presents. So let's start there. Yeah. I mean, and as I said, you know, before, I mean, a lot of the empirical like information and when I mean empirical it means that like on one hand, I have all this information that I've like studied in my life or uh like as a therapist and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there's other information that i get that when i can't understand like how a certain behavior works i'm like i got to figure that out mm-hmm. and so then i start working with people and that's the empirical so the data how i came to the idea of narcissism as an addiction mm-hmm. was actually fairly recent it was actually this year actually um actually like pretty much right pretty much right after uh the po- the last that that podcast episode with you it was a huge aha moment for me and as i told you louise i told you it is an evolving like thing mm-hmm. i mean i don't know what's going to happen next as i'm studying these white people i mean i i, I never imagined that i would see narcissism as an addiction mm-hmm. 
but it just makes all the sense in the world. And it is a pleasure to be able to, you know, share what I've learned on this platform uh, because I just feel that the more people that really get a sense of what narcissism is all about, I think in so many ways we can address it, as you said, from a compassionate standpoint and from a very like, from a standpoint where we can actually make a difference in the world. And, and by that, I mean, really ending the cycle of violence. That's the key right there. That's what, that's what always has drawn me to your work from the get-go, is there's a lens of compassion, there's a desire to understand, and not to condone, but to actually heal and transform. And that's yeah. so important to me, versus casting them onto an island of narcissists. We wanna, I want to learn this just as much as you, know, you are. So thank you for the courage of pioneering, really. You're a pioneer right now. You're learning this as you go. And I, I bow to your experience and your internal wisdom, even more than your training. So um, yeah, I welcome all that here. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so back to the defenses. So for the longest time, I was like, okay, we have these defense mechanisms, these racist signatures, these racist defense mechanisms, and I knew that attachment trauma was driving it. Right. And I was like, and mind you, that took some time to gather that it was attachment trauma. Can you tell well, the listeners what attachment trauma means? Yes. So there's a lot of, so like in the classical sense, attachment trauma happens between the ages of like zero to two or three. But in reality, when people work with attachment trauma, what actually tends to happen is um, it's essentially childhood abuse and neglect, you know, and it's in a variety of ways. It's violence. It's some type of boundary violation that occurs. When I think of a boundary violation, I think of violence, right? We've talked about that before. So I started noticing too, that there was like a compulsion. Mm-hmm. So not only was I I understand. So, okay, actually, let me go back to nurse. I keep on because there's well, so and, uh, and just to finish the attachment trauma piece. Yeah, yeah, the attachment trauma. So, attachment traumas are very much about children essentially not getting what they need as children, which basically means that they can't emotionally regulate, right? That limbic system situation. And it's also known as relational trauma. And so clearly like our earliest relational traumas, they're going to happen in our childhood. They're going to happen usually with our primary caregivers, your parents, right? And that's really where we get our first traumas. And these traumas really set the scene for how we're going to interact with other people as we age. And the reason for that is because, and this is just fascinating, of course, um, is that we have implicit and explicit memory. And so when we're, when we're little, uh, really our right brain is developing. Now the way to get that nice and sweetly developed is if we have a primary caregiver that really kind of basically imprints with us in a beautiful way and uh, attunes with us. As in, if we are, um, let's say that a primary caregiver, uh, you know, they didn't mean it, but maybe they glanced a certain way and we were very little and we thought, oh, I feel so rejected. You know, uh, you don't love me. You know, there's this negative cognition, negative self-talk. And then the parent recognizes our body language, right? And then goes, wait a minute, let me now look at this child eye to eye, right? Because that's a little trauma. It was not intentional, but the trauma's there. Mm-hmm. And then the primary caregiver looks at 
the child and attunes with that child, which could be soothing, Mm -hmm. letting that child cry and kind of like fall apart. And so that, that kind of, and that helps the child's brain learn to self-regulate, but because the child at that age, you know, basically when they're children from like, basically even, basically we, even in teenager in our brain chemistry, we're, we're going back and forth between like, can we emotionally regulate? Can we not? There's certain milestones. So I'm talking about probably like zero to like eight or 10. And so then we're, so then the, so then at that moment, if, if the parent can repair the relationship, that trauma and recognize that that child, you know, experienced that attachment wound, that parent can now go back to the child, attune, and that will help ease the child's suffering and repair, mm. which, and the child cannot do that on their own. They cannot, Correct. their brain is literally developing and they can't do it on their own. So if let's say that a parent though doesn't ever repair and it's hard for a parent to constantly repair Mm -hmm. the mistakes. I mean, especially if they're not trauma informed, especially if they're not trauma informed, like, I mean, and most are not, you know, so they don't recognize like this child, I didn't mean it, but I just traumatized my child. They don't go, oh, now I need to repair this, right? And they don't even know how to repair this. So then that child, they, they mean well, they, they, you know, they're trying to be the best parent they can. Mm-hmm. But they also lack that understanding because they themselves have experienced attachment wounds. So it's hard for a parent to give a child what, let's say, their parents didn't even give them. And this is this intergenerational attachment trauma yes, that happens. Yes. Yeah, right? and it's so biological, right? Because like totally. I'm hearing the in my world we call it rupture and repair. Mm-hmm. And it's like the rupture happens, which is inevitable. We have to have rupture to build the resilience. But yes. the repair is the thing that keeps you from getting traumatized because mm-hmm. you co-regulate. Yes. And that's biological. Your co the adrenaline, the hormones you make, how your nervous system fires impulses. So that's and this is and this is so good, everyone listening, because this is like this is like the seed of April's work around racism, like that's where it starts. It, does. <laughs> it all begins it there in the body, right? And then it goes yes. out into the learned behavior. So yes. continue, please. Totally, totally. So it's that biological development that like fails to happen, you know? And then now with the narcissism, narcissism, I started to see it very much as an attachment disorder. Because I kept on seeing every time I would take care of white people, I kept on noticing they were having these attachment wounds, of course. And I started to go, what? This this is an attachment disorder. And I'm like, why are we not talking about attachment wounds and narcissism? And all we think of narcissism is this person's egotistical and they don't care about anybody. And I'm like, wait a minute, but something had to have happened for this person to be like so self-centered or, or just whatever, you know, um, trying to manipulate power, stuff like that. There's a deficit somewhere. Where is this deficit in this human being? Like what is, what? So then as I talked before, you know, I, I go, I feel like I need to look up the word narcissism and really get a sense of the etymology. Like what is going on here? And I saw the word narc. 
And I thought, and I looked it up and it said it's a Greek word for numb. And I thought, that's strange. Nobody mm. ever talks about narcissism and numbing pain. And I thought, oh shit, <laughs> numbing pain is addiction. Like that's the point of addiction is to yes. numb pain from trauma, that, that, numb the pain from a history of trauma. And I was like, oh, narcissism's an addiction. <laughs> and, and it like hit me like a ton of bricks. And, and, and it was just like, what? And, and I'm hearing I, fireworks in my mind right now. Yes. And I just started, you know, then I started looking at the cycle of addiction And being the, and you know what, I'm going to throw something in here real quick. So back in 2014, I got a Vedic astrology reading. Trust me, it's all connected. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember this astrologer telling me, you know, you yourself have an addiction and, or you're going to be working with people with addiction. I said, bullshit. I'm not going to be working with people addiction. I'm a medical social worker. I can't stand dealing with people who struggle from addiction. Like, I mean, and of course what it was is me going into countertransference, me, you know, cognitive dissonance, me not facing my own addiction to other human <laughs> beings with my codependency, me not having dealt with that. So I'm like, oh no, I don't, in other words, I don't want to look at, I don't want to deal with the people because that's going to remind me of my own shit. Basically. Right on, right on. Right, so I did oh, yeah. subconscious level shit. Like I, you know, I, room for growth, room for healing. And I mean, I laugh at it now, but back then I really thought I'm never going to work with people who struggle with addiction. And she was right. She was right. I definitely struggled with addiction and it was codependency, which is narcissism, covert mm -hmm. narcissism, trying to, you know, um, control their human beings in a covert way um, because of my history of my own attachment wounds growing up. Mm -hmm. And so she was right. And so then it all came to me like, wow, she was right. Like mm -hmm. it took six years, but she was right. Mm -hmm. And um, so with that said, with the addiction and narc and an pain, then I started looking at the cycle of addiction. I started looking at the cycle of abuse, the cycle of violence. Mm -hmm. And I started to look at the actual cycle of abuse. I started to go, wait a minute, abuse. What if a human was like a substance for someone? like a drug, you know, like if I look at the cycle of abuse and the target drug is essentially that human being, then we can actually see how narcissistic abuse, this trendy thing, how narcissistic, what is narcissistic abuse? But when you actually Google narcissistic abuse, it says physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. And I'm like, but that's all synonymous with childhood abuse, mm -hmm. all of it. And it, and it's getting reenacted. That's right. So I started, when I started researching, I came across the Cartman drama triangle, which, you know, you're either going into, uh, so when people struggle with addiction, they're shifting, they're, they're shifting usually between a victim role, a persecutory role or a rescuer role. And I started to know, I saw something, I go, wait a minute, the rescuer is the codependent mm -hmm. for sure. And the persecutor is like the quote, traditional narcissist 
And that the victim actually really represents both. Yeah. And I started to see how in family dynamics, of course, in the Cartman drama triangle, it's a, the drama is actually a compulsion. I started to see that, like, wait a minute, like, what's this? And, and why the compulsion with the car? Why is it hard for someone to get out of that Cartman drama triangle? <sighs> and it's because the thing about trauma is that it gets stuck in our bodies. It gets stuck. That's the right. stuckness is that reenactment. So I noticed that when it comes to abuse, I started noticing that people either give their power away, which is essentially covert. Like you, you try to manipulate another human being, mm-hmm. but giving their power away. And that's how that person's using another person, which is connected to the rescuer. So, yeah, that's, right? I'm going to pause because that's, yeah. I, I get that and love that. And I want everyone to catch up to that because that's very far out. I know, I know. Not not wrong. Bring me back. Bring me back. No, it's good. No, I want to stay. I want to go there. I want to stay far (laughs) out. (laughs) I want to go out because that is so important because that that correlates directly to fawn response, you Mm -hmm. know, which is like unconsciously unknown to me. There's this reflexive mechanism when there's discomfort where mm-hmm. I give away my boundaries, my resources, yes. my body that's sometimes. That's anxious attachment. So that's the part yes. that I need to fill in there. That's so it. I started seeing that with the fawn response, for example, that you're talking about, right? Right? Flight response. That's connected to anxious attachment. And so I started noticing that with narcissistic parents, right, who are also, again, addicted, they're essentially addicted to their kids. They're basically reenacting traumas with their children, because their parents said the same to them. And it's just, so I noticed that children who become adults who go into that fawn and anxious attachment, they give their power away uh, because they're just trying to be safe. Like they had parents that were very overbearing and this is the way that they, but it's also more importantly, like what's the addiction piece? Like how do you get high off that? Well, because the truth of the matter is that we all want connection. We all want love. And ultimately, narcissism is very much a love addiction, and it's just not healthy, and it, and it really doesn't actually healthily satiate another human being. And so when a child grows up with their primary caregivers, they think the way to have this attunement and connection is to give my power away. Mm. They go into that anxious attachment. And then unfortunately, this behavior, of course, gets reenacted at people's jobs with it, you know, and just in a variety of reenacted ways. And then with the, so that would represent the covert narcissism, which is literally giving power away and that's connected to anxious attachment. Then I notice, and that's connected to the rescuer role. Because a lot of people think, oh, I'm the rescuer. So I got all this power and how could I ever, no, rescuer role, you're doing a lot of martyrdom, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of giving away power. And it's, and it's, you're, permitting like boundary violations in order to save that other person. Now they get, they get this hit under the, and you get under the identity of I'm powerful because of this. And that, I'm powerful because I rescued that yes. person. That and hit the, is part of the addiction. Yes. And this is the quote empath. Like so the empath is often trying to rescue, guess what? Mm-hmm. The overt narcissist. Mm-hmm. Because they can see, because they do have empathy, and they can see that that overt narcissist will probably abuse his children. You'll often hear stories where the empaths like, you know, I fell in love with this person, and I know this person's been abused as a child. And yes, but they were both abused as children, 
or neglect and or neglected, right? So the rescuer feels a compulsion because really they're actually unconsciously trying to save themselves through, mm. through. So they're trying to, they weren't rescued. They weren't saved. They were abused or neglected. So like they're in that trauma, they're actually reenacting the importance of saving and liberating themselves, That's but they right. don't do that. They become preoccupied and addicted to trying to reenact that compulsively with another human being. And, and that's why it's, that's why it's an addiction because that's there's why. this constant. I'm almost. I almost have the. Uh, what's the call? Like the pseudo safety. I almost touch yes. the pseudo safety that I'm pulled back. Yeah. And that charge for I want to be safe. That desperation. That anxious attachment. I mean, that's so. That's so beautifully put. It's like you know, it, it, it's a false sense of security, and it's Correct. and it's and it's a false attunement. Um, because true attunement means that you're not going to struggle with addiction because you can self-regulate. That's right. You can self-regulate. So that self-regulation has to happen in order to fully detox and gain sobriety from your addiction, mm-hmm. um, which is driven by trauma. Okay. Now, so then we have the persecutory role, um, persecutory role for the Cartman drama triangle. This is the overt narcissist. This is the like, I'm putting power, I'm taking power over another human being to feel a sense of like um, attunement, attachment, love, relationship, all that, right? Yep. That's connected to the dismissive avoidant attachment style. You will see that people who struggle with overt narcissism, they're like, well, I don't care. I'm unapologetic and just like cut off that person. You don't mean anything to me. You're not really bothering me. No, like the person's really hurt. Mm. They feel very rejected. And basically that dismissal avoidant means that that person grew up with primary caregivers who essentially could not be trusted. So they learn, I can't trust people. Yes. So the anxious attachment is like, I can't trust myself. I need to trust in the other person. And and that's how they give their power away. I trust that person to give their power away. But that's usually from, again, a parent that's overbearing, right? So we got that, you know, um, I always get them mixed up. The authoritative versus the, um, I can't remember the other one, but basically... I think it's authoritative. Essentially, it's like overbearing parent, right? Mm-hmm. And so versus that earned secured attachment, you made a mistake. I will set boundaries with you, but I will attune with you and we can mm-hmm. figure this out, right? That's right. Um, and so, so then you have another mix of this, which is passive aggressive behavior. This is what happens in disorganized attachment. Disorganized attachment means... Growing up with parents that you they're very inconsistent, unreliable, like big time neglect, and you just not knowing what's going to happen. So you basically, as a human being, you switch from being like overtly narcissistic, like trying to take power over someone and, and, or giving power away, depending on like the scenario with the relationship with another human being. And, and throughout all of it, Louise, there's a lack of uh, vulnerability, and without vulnerability, you can't have connection. And that, that's the piece I want to put a pin in for a moment because that, that, that I don't know what we're going to call it, a boundary even against vulnerability, but which is the narcissism essentially because it's too dangerous to feel that. There isn't the capacity mm-hmm. to actually feel the vulnerability versus this person lacks. People, I think, get sociopaths mixed with narcissists all the time in their minds. 
there isn't a lack of feeling. There's the inability to actually have capacity to feel. You have feelings, but you don't know how to hold them, right? So all these, these behaviors and responses come out as you're detailing them. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, you know, you have this trauma wound and there's this constant numbing of pain, relational trauma. And so that means when we get into relationships, if we haven't had those attachment wounds healed, we're always going to be reenacting um, and interacting in a way. And this is, by the way, for example, in communication styles. So for those that are like, oh, no, I've never gone through abuse and neglect. No, boo. Like, hear me what I'm getting ready to say. <laughs> because <laughs> if you know about communication styles, they also go in alignment with attachments. So we have, you know, we have communication that is assertive, for example. Assertive communication is connected to secure earned attachment. I mean, that's like you're recognizing your needs and you can effectively set boundaries with other human beings, but also connect with them. Like you're pretty emotionally regulated. Like, you know, that this is going to be a conflict, but you know, like you're okay. Everything's going to be okay. Like, you know, it's just life. It's just life. And your body's okay with that. You're not like, you know, like you said, going into fond response, going into, you know, you're not either, you, you're not switching into a mode of, I'm going to give my power away to try to avoid this conflict, for example, or I'm going to take power over this person to avoid this conflict in emotional pain, et cetera, the trauma, because trauma is connected to conflict as well. It doesn't have to be, but when you haven't healed, conflict is seen as trauma. Like, I'm going to get traumatized. Like, this is bad. I got to try to avoid conflict, right? Right. It's like conflict and, and threat get overcoupled. Yes. Right? Yes. Because the conflicts in the past with one's primary caregivers were not like addressed in a way that was um, equitable and, you know, very loving and attuned and, you know, et cetera. So then when people get triggered with conflict, interpersonal conflict, those reenactments also get triggered from conflict equals trauma equals I'm going to get hurt. So I got to like now, like, Oh, you know, and of course it's connected to power because when you're traumatized, you feel very disempowered, right? When you've been abused and neglected, there is a power dynamic happening in that relationship. Right. Ah, so then, um, so communication style. So the assertive is the earned secured attachment. Then we have passive communication. That's the fond response. Like passive means I'm just going to give my power away again, Mm. connected to anxious attachment. So when people are like, I have a hard time saying no, um, that's because you're interacting in a passive way to avoid conflict because it's connected to your past, which is trauma. And then, so for those of you listening, like I have this tendency where I, I tend to like, um, have this passive communication style. It's kind of hard for me to be assertive. That's a symptom of trauma that needs to get healed. Then we have aggressive communication that's connected to dismissive avoidant attachment. And that's connected to power over people connected to a history of trauma. So it's interesting because I also noticed that in, in the literature, we're not even really properly connecting, like even our everyday communication style with our attachment history. Like we're not even really getting it. I'm really glad you said that. Um, you know, there's a, um, are you familiar with Resma's work? The, yeah. Like, yeah. The, I, my grandmother's hands work. Uh, I, I, I kind of like, I feel that Resma's work is good with POC, not good with white people because I saw the, I couldn't even finish reading it because everyone like 
acclaims and lauds it. And and I think that Resma in the somatic sense is strong, like That's super, where I hit super, it. like yeah. honestly badass in Agreed. knowledge of somatic. But where Resma lacks is, is in that, you could say the forensic psychology aspect of it, really understanding because the moment that I see any author, no matter how, how prolific, the moment that they say that white people are complicit, I know that they have not worked with enough white people and they really don't understand their psychology. It's nothing personal. It's just that I know. I know. Yeah. So from my assessment, I could tell that Resma has done, and, and, and you know he said, I've done a lot of work with POC. And doing somatic work and and working with people who have been the victims of racism. And I think that Resma did a lot of work to try to understand white people through, uh, you know, working with the victims of racism. And, and you can get an cr- incredible amount of data by working with the victims of racism. But it's very different than actually every single day, like I'm doing, working with these white people that are narcissists, like you gather information that, so to me, I could tell when I read the book, the person lacked the actual hands-on experience because I guarantee you that had Resma worked with enough white people, uh, you know, he would have noticed like, oh, starting to connect the dots here. Like, oh, you know, but when I see, and also when people say that, here's the other thing too, um, when I see the complicit thing, I go, it's also assigned to me. And again, I'm sorry, everyone. That's <laughs> why this person look. Man, I'm just as critical as I am to myself too. Look, that's a sign the person hasn't done enough self-work in their own narcissism work. Because as I told you from the last podcast, I used to believe that white people were, compl- all white people were complicit too. Until I started to see that I, my own traumas blinded me to the truth. And so every time I see anybody say that all white people are complicit, to make it clear, complicity means intention. You're intentionally doing something. You're calculative. I mean, if you look it up, that's literally what it means. I used to believe the same thing because I thought, how in the hell could any white person not be complicit? Like it's so vicious, like what happens, right? But people can perpetrate violence unintentionally. And that's because of dissociation. And so I well, that's the fine well. line of that's the fine yes. line of your work that I, I appreciate. Yes. Um, because I think I think um I think like you say, complicit versus how is it in me is different. Mm-hmm. And and I brought his name up because there's a quote that I really appreciate from him that you that kind of just related to something you had just said, which essentially is um, when trauma is decontextualized in a person, it looks like personality. And so when you were just saying the piece about our early attachment traumas and our communication styles, I think it's such a, it's so important that we're learning that now. These simple daily things that we think are who we are, the way we speak, or even culturally are so rooted in trauma. You are getting, you are getting me to get into ego dystonic and ego syntonic. Because when you say that statement, Mike, so this is important for everyone to understand. And so it's hard for people to believe that narcissism isn't always narcissistic personality disorder. Um, it really is a personality disorder. It's, it's both an attachment disorder and a personality disorder and an addiction. It, when it's active, it's an addiction, um, which requires detox. Um, and the attachment wounds are what created the narcissism the addiction. 
to numb that pain. Now, ego, so our communication styles, right? See, that's the problem. See, narcissism becomes so normalized in our society, we start to believe that's our personality. Oh, well, I'm just not, I'm just kind of quiet and I just kind of don't like conflict and I just kind of, and it's like, actually the person's not well, they're mentally ill. So they, when I mean personality disorder, I mean, when you think about it, personality disorder, I mean, in, in basic 101 mental health, like we know, egocentric is when, that's personality disorder. When we start to, when we start to think that our, personality is our mental health is our is our mental illness that's egocentric we can't even tell the difference right um and that's gonna happen because in our society narcissism is so normalized right so then we think it's like normal and we think it's so personal that people they justify violence oh it's just that person you know oh let boys be boys you know let them you know with the sexism and violating women and stuff like that right um, but then we have ego dystonic. So the thing is, and this is hard with addiction. People struggle with addiction. They're, they're also extremely egocentric. Like it's hard for them. Their addiction becomes a big part of who they are, a big part of their personality. And it's very hard for them to detox because it's, it means because they have a relationship with that substance. Okay. And that's a replacement for attachment connection. Okay. Really the original addiction is narcissism. It's really the foundation. After that, human beings struggle with narcissism and then they're addicted to other human beings. And then they go on to use substances or, or, or behavioral addictions, hoarding, whatever, you know, compulsion. It's always a compulsion, some type of compulsion, it doesn't matter if it's hoarding or gambling or workaholic or whatever the compulsion is. It's an addiction. It's meant to soothe because there's emotional pain because the person does not have secured attached relationships with other human beings. You know, now we, a lot of people, we can have and love people and still abuse them. And that creates a lot of toxic violence in relationships. So it's like, um, I think, I think you saying too, I just want to say, yeah. um, you saying that piece about the root of all of the addictions really start yes. with narcissism. Yes. It's so, so important again for everyone to hear that because the piece that you bring the holistic piece and understanding and trauma informed, I'm not even gonna say opinion. I'm going to say experience around narcissism is really that it, it's just as simply put, all the ways it expresses itself, simply put, it's an act to soothe. Mm -hmm. A person to soothe and Self-regulation. Right, Absolutely. right. Lack it's, of attunement. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so there's, it's, it's a very actually quite fragile human being mm -hmm. because they can't really take on a lot of charge. Even joy can mm -hmm. be too overwhelming. It's not even just the negative charges. And so this is why people might see someone who's narcissistic as cold or mm -hmm. arrogant or, you know, whatever we're attaching the personality to, but it's all just a motivation to numb from any kind of discomfort, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so we have- It's hard to take in the joy, especially when you're covertly narcissistic because you're used mm -hmm. to giving your power away. So, so then receiving becomes like awkward. That's not the fix. The fix isn't joy anymore. The fix is- torture and giving power so that's where you know there's no fix in that glad you said it that way 
Because I think it's to hear that word fix is super important. It's like, where do I get my charge, right? Where do I, where do I get my high? Where do I get my rush? And really that rush is like this pseudo sense of self that mm-hmm. then, then metabolizes and then it's gone. Then you lose self and you have to get the rush again, just like any other substance. So exactly. I, so when you, you say that- people, yes. So someone that has no boundaries and gives away, it'd be really hard to take in. It'd be really hard yes. to hold. And now- yeah, and- Mm-hmm. And you're, it's the rescuer. Rescuers have a right. hard time like, oh, taking a compliment or, you know, something like that. Right. And so now this all comes to a point in your other specialty, which is racism recovery work. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. can you tell everyone listening how this pattern of addiction and narcissism from early, early attachment trauma and intergenerational attachment trauma, mm-hmm. how that turns into racism? Mm-hmm. So the narcissism, the I very much have seen with white people that um, it's that it, it, violence through like attachment traumas that haven't been healed, right? That becomes like the foundation in our world of violence, period, period. So we have to have, you, you could say, you know, like some soil that like the soil has to be ripe for that racism. So if you have this, for example, let's say that there was some earned secured attachment in the family, actually really well, let's say that. And that would mean that let's say that the white person was taught racism. They're probably going to reject that because they're like, that's not healthy. That's I know like that's not, <laughs> like that's not, good, you know, um, that's not healthy, right? Because they understand what true health and, and self-love and love to others, like what that means. So it becomes then actually, um, a value thing. So they're like that. I don't value that because I value true connection and love. Right. So when you're taught that violence growing up, when you get this normalized in the family and nobody ever gets like the trauma healing that they need, and this gets normalized, that becomes like the foundation for the racism. Because if you, if, if we study and examine like Dylan Roof and like a lot of other like overt racists, you know, like intentional racists, they have very, very painful history, childhood abuse and neglect stories. And they desperately want to feel that connection. And uh, they have a tendency to want to join white supremacist groups because they want a family. Like they, they want to, they want the attached connection. Right. And so people just answered like, a, a question in my mind. I was going to yeah. ask you that is that it's almost like a dysregulated attunement. Like yes. it feels like family, like you just said, so there's yeah. a sense of belonging, even yes. though it's a violent thing. Yes. And so you actually have, of course, like a whole family basically, which would be like white, like a white nationalist group. What do they do? Well, in the Cartman drama triangle, they're addicted to persecuting, right? They're addicted to um, discrimination, stereotyping, some type of persecutory angle um, towards people of color. You know, that's what they do. And people of color, of course, are the victims of that, right? And so um, there's a high off of that. Um, And one would say like, how? Because, because in a family sometimes, in a family sometimes what happens, and we can see this with Donald Trump, he's, he's like feels connected to, you know, what is it, Kim Jong-un? Like he, he's, 
he feels like this emotional connection with dictators that are overt narcissists, right? It's like a real emotional, like deep connection because his father was, and I love Mary Trump's book. I read that book about a month or so ago. She really details the attachment issues in the Trump family and Donald Trump, he basically did the opposite of her father, his brother, um, Fred. Um, He actually ended up, uh, trying to be just like his dad, who was the overt narcissist, right? And overt racist. And so you can't, you basically can't, people always kind of wonder like, well, what is it? Narcissism or racism? And I'm like, but you can't have the racism without the narcissism because racism is like an expression of narcissism. So you can't, people think that racism is like separate or something from narcissism. And they think, oh, we're just trying to detract from the truth of the brutality of racism. Oh no, make no mistake. Like narcissism is like very violent. I mean, this is like the point. So you have to have like a white family that, that has like a history of narcissism, whether they're giving their power away or taking power over. Um, and, and, and what that does then it, it, that's, that creates an addictive family. Right. And, and so that they get used to it. This gets normalized. Then how, and why does the addiction to people of color, where does that like exist? How does that happen? Um, because when a human being feels that, that lacking, which is again, connected to that, you know, attachment trauma, they're going to keep not just in their narcissism, they're addicted to the human beings. It's not enough. Like they're going to now go and get the next fix. They're going to get, so it's a, when you think of like addiction, uh, racism is a comorbidity of narcissism. So it's like, if you're addicted to, let's say, um, alcohol, uh, you're going to get, you're going to experience a tolerance and then you're going to get dependent and then you're going to get a compulsive addiction. Right. And at that point you, it may not even be enough. Now you're going to go and get another drug and put that into the mix or another type of addiction because that high is still not good enough. The drinking is not enough. You're going to do something else. So with white people, they have absolutely exploited one another, oppressed one another, used one another. They have. And then when it's not enough, they then have to get the next fix. And that's what people of color. And so when we go back to Europe, you know, when we go back to the monarchy, when we go back to the oppression of, you know, uh, poor white people. I mean, hell, we can go back to the Crusades. I mean, God, we could just, you know, the history of it all. We have these hierarchies of monarchy and, and all that. And they lord power over the people. That's inequality. So this is the thing that people need to understand. They think, oh, the codependence, just the victim only. It's like, no, boo. Like, like giving your power away, it plants the seed of inequality. Because the moment that you give your power away, that it's inequality. And then power over is also unequal. So earned secured attachment is equality and, and, and people have a hard time like going, well, how can that have anything to do with social justice? And I'm like, but the whole point of social justice is equality and not abusing other human beings and not oppressing them. So how do we do that in our relationships and where do we get that violence in the world through our relationships from relationship traumas in our childhood? Right. And so, the, so I'm going to give you a chance because you look like you may want to ask a question. Are you good? <laughs> That's a lot, right? Well, it's it's good. It's 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 um yeah. when you were well, well, the thing I was sticking with me is I liked how you said 
racism is one expression of narcissism. Yes. Because my mind said, okay, like homophobia is another one. It's a type of drug. So like homophobia, sexism, racism, they're all specific types of drugs. So you can get hooked on meth. You could get hit hooked on something else. White people get hooked on abusing one another. And they also get hooked on abusing people of color. So of course that gets into a whole other thing because white people have an extensive history um, of, of using other people economically. Again, this goes back to Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, these Europeans, when they came to, to America, they brought that narcissism from the monarchy and from all that to the United, like to the future, you know, United States. And that's how they oppressed indigenous peoples. Because even though they're like, we want to leave the oppressor, but you haven't recovered from your narcissism. So you done went to a new land and then you like repeated that narcissism to, you still have those attachment wounds. So white people essentially, and, and people in America and people throughout the world. And that's what this is where I agree with They're you. They're addicted around. to capitalism. They're addicted yeah. to consumerism. It's it's well. When you were just saying, you know, I I, I interviewed this woman Amber McZeal the other day who um, has this uh, concept she's working with, this philosophy called decolonizing the psyche, mm-hmm. and and she said exactly what you just said, um, just about when you have when when you're addicted to capitalism, mm-hmm. you're essentially you have to become addicted to othering. Like you mm-hmm. have to create, you have to create the polarity or it can't exist. Right. And mm-hmm. so when you think of, you know, trauma, why trauma, if you think of it in a trauma informed way, in a somatic way, mm-hmm. that an initial white flight that came from Europe to America, mm-hmm. flight response, mm-hmm. and then the projection of the inner perpetrator, like mm-hmm. you just said, right? So reenactment, mm-hmm. reenactment because they're disenfranchised themselves. Triangle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. disenfranchised they they're narcissists they want power they're yep. so afraid to ever be yep. empowered again yep. because of all the torture of the middle ages and yep. so now here they are in america Ooh, who can we overpower so we can yeah so safe? we're never hurt again yeah so we're never hurt again and and this is where i agree with you around complicit versus implicit because it's it's in the DNA of a white person. That's implicitly in your DNA, that memory of oh, those ancestors. Oh, yes. <laughs> right? yes. And I, think, and I think we miss that when we say complicit, it becomes this intentional thing, but the implicit is the part to really work with because that's what's running all this, right? It's the trauma. It, it, it's absolutely implicit. And and people just only focus on the complicit because it is the, mo- it is the most violent. It is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It is, but it's always the trauma that drives intentional or unintentional racism. It's, you know, so you could say that when I started addressing racism, you know, back in 2017 and actually started coaching white people in 2018, I mean, I very much started with racism and then I kind of like reverse engineered and had to go backwards. And then I, I reverse engineered and go, oh, this is attachment traumas that drives. Okay. Then I reverse engineered, oh, this is narcissism. And then I reverse engineered again and I go, okay, but what's the root of that? And I'm like, oh, addiction. That's that's why it's so hard to stop. Because white people are like, I don't understand why I can't stop. It's a compulsion. So saviorism is, you know, people are like, uh, they tell white people, you know, all kinds of people tell white people um, who are experts in racism. They say, you know, white people, you got to stop being a savior. Stop being a white savior. And I'm like, follow these rules and it'll stop your saviorism. And I'm thinking going, but that's not how you start. That's not how you, um, 
help someone who struggles with addiction. They can't follow like a set of rules because that ends up being performative. And actually that's, that's what right. addicts do. Like addicts want to be functional addicts. They, they, yes. they want to appear okay. Um, and so it actually doesn't get to the root and they need to detox. Uh, and so traditionally it's when it comes to the detox and going back to America and European stuff like that, it's been very hard for them to detox from their addiction to consumerism and their addiction mm. to having power over others. And again, this always is the root of narc because in order for them to have that economic power, who, where do they get like the money? Karl Marx, like, you know, the people are the resource. People are the substance. People are what you use to. And it's interesting because as I'm putting together my, um, a presentation I'll be doing later. I was looking at the definition too of exploit. It's interesting in the dictionary. There's what two different mean? definitions of exploit. One of them is you're a hero. And the other one is you're like taking power over people. That's so interesting. <laughs> wow. Polar opposites. Very, very interesting. It's like saying exploits. Oh, yeah. you did this and the exploits. And when you think of manifest destiny, there's this back to the justification. So the defense mechanisms and why would why would white people justify the use the abuse of people of color now (laughs) to understand this now if you're abusing alcohol you don't need to manipulate or control the alcohol you just get the alcohol and just drink it you don't have to be skillful if you're trying to use another human being you got to be manipulative that's right and you have to have some skills to get what you want out of that person, right? Which is, the, again, really actually technically is a security or an attachment, but it's not. It, it, you're trying to get the attunement, but it's not. And so, so when it comes to, oh, I'm losing my frame mind because I always think of so many things at the same time. Um, tell me again what I was just saying. Well, I, may I actually ask a question? Yes. Because it, it's right at the point where I wanted to ask this question anyway. Yes. And you were, you were saying about detoxing. Yes. And you were saying, you know, white people can't just stop saviorism because you can't just stop yeah. trauma. These are all trauma no. expressions. Yeah. So what's, what's your, because we have to start closing, what's your, yes. first, what's your first step? Like what, what's the advice you give to anyone, the first step for working with narcissism and detoxing from that? Hmm. If there is a first step. Oh, yeah. Um, it's going to be in the stages of change. It's going to be shifting from, you know, the pre-contemplative to the contemplative stage. And in order to do that, you have to gain awareness. Um, you have to take in information so that you can get educated. That's really the first step. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, why I do what I do on Instagram, because I'm trying to educate white people on their narcissism. How is it expressed as racism? But in so many ways, like I never expect to be a full-blown narcissist specialist and then addiction specialist. And I, I, I didn't, but that's absolutely what I'm doing every day. I'm, I'm trying to help white people recover from their narcissism, expressed as racism. And uh, that first step of the awareness piece, um, just so everyone knows, it, even if you gain that awareness, it's going to be hard to detox. Okay, because those defense mechanisms, so now we're back to the defense mechanisms. Those defense mechanisms are going to prevent people from recovery. Think about it. When you think about addiction, there's a lot of like excuses, like a lot of defensive kind of behavior that like prevents someone from gaining sobriety. 
Um, and so when you all watch other white people and they get super defensive about racism, they don't know it, but they're, especially the overt racists, like they especially don't want to detox off of abusing like people of color. They're like, no. Mm -hmm. um, now, if we talk about narcissism and, and like Republicans versus Democrats, the Republicans, um, they are overtly narcissistic. And I view the Democrats as actually very covertly narcissistic. They tend to give their power away to the um, they tend to give their, actually the progressives tend to give their power to the Democrats, they're the most codependent, the most rescuer. And then like, then the Democrats are kind of like a passive aggressive, but they're more covert. And then they then give the powers to the Republicans. And so the progressives are like, why are Democrats giving the powers to the Republicans? Why do they keep on, you know? And, and that's because they're addicted to their money. They're addicted to like, so everyone has this little addiction and at the apex of it, you know, are the Republicans and they're they keep kind of, why are they so cruel and this, that? Because they're addicted to economic stuff. They're addicted. They're addicted. They're the most addicted. addicted. They, they are, they do not want to detox. So when that's why they're so freaking out about socialism, they're like, socialism would mean that I have to actually share and I'd have to detox. Uh, they don't want to detox. That's, that's the real reason why, in my viewpoint, that's the real reason why Americans don't want to embrace um, socialized medicine, socialism, period. Um, the only reason, you know, every time I hear somebody say, um, every time I hear somebody say, uh, oh, socialism, socialism and communism is so terrible. And don't you understand what's been done in the past? Well, I mean, if you take socialism, you know, and it's run by a narcissist, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Socialism is actually really kind of a reflection of earned security. It is about sharing power equitably. You know, it's about sharing resources. That's actually a really mentally healthy economic policy, socialism. It totally makes sense. But it's hard for Americans to wrap their minds around a, a economy with socialism. And, and they're not going to. If you try to force socialism on a very narcissistic uh, populace, I mean, they're just not going to do it. Capitalism matches their narcissism. And it's back to that egocentric, they don't want to, that's a part of their identity. They don't want to let go of that mm -hmm. part of their addiction. They don't want to let go of that. So they don't want to detox. So that's what, the, that's what that's all about. Well, I have to always thank you. You're brilliant. I love having you on. You give us so much generous information. And I mean, you've, you've really, um, you've given so many, you've given so much language to what I've always felt around right? narcissism. And I, I really thank you for that because I've always had that understanding, you know, intuitively, mm -hmm. but the language and this new the work language. you're doing, it's really mm -hmm. good. So, um, you know, I, I support you fully and I, so many other people do, obviously. Uh, is there anything you want to announce, any particular events coming up for this you'd like to share with everybody? Well, I think it would be good for everyone to know that um, I will, you will have access to a free webinar on Crowdcast. If, if you go to my website at racismrecoverycenter.com, there's going to be a button that says like watch free webinars and you are going to be able to, you know, watch the webinar. I want you to click on racism as an addiction. And we're really, you know, going to get into a lot of details. You, you have free replay, you're good to go, you know, you, you know, and feel free to share that with people, you know. The other thing I have going on is on November the 12th, I have open enrollment for my coaching program, my year long program. So that's coming up. And uh, so <clears throat> I just highly recommend that you check out my website, check all the free content. Also, of course, 
you know, I have a free 90 day, you know, course on Instagram. Mm, nice. And so if, if you go to, you know, Instagram.com slash racism recovery center, um, and you click in the highlights, go to month one, go to month two, and soon I'll have month three up. So you can, what you will get out of those first 90 days and I'm not even joking, you are literally going to know what attachment wounds in the second you're going to get. You're going to, first month is all about what kind of self-care do you need to do if you're going to go into these attachment wounds, because this is like really Mm -hmm. tough shadow work. Then the second month, it's the trauma month where you're learning about your attachment wounds. What are these attachment wounds? And then the third month, you're learning actually about that narcissism. You know, and and at the end of the 90 days, you're going to understand exactly how your racism is expressed, how your narcissism is expressed, um, which is excellent because you can actually take that then to your therapist, go to a somatic therapist, go to an EMDR therapist, go to a therapist and unpack that and get that proper attunement, you know, in that therapeutic alliance. And, And that's like, that's where it's at. So it's a very valuable resource. And I hope that everyone can, you know, take advantage of that. Thank you so much. I hope our discussion today brought some clarity to you, maybe about your own tendencies, maybe to better understand another. And I like to tell people that my concept or my even experience of compassion isn't one of dismissing someone's behaviors or actions. It's also not one of condoning someone's behaviors or actions. However, It's one of understanding someone's behaviors and actions. Because in my experience, when I truly understand someone, one, I'm left with zero constriction in my body. I soften. I understand. I can love unconditionally. And sometimes loving somebody unconditionally means I'm leaving them. I truly believe if we can understand the other in our society, whoever the other is for you, we can start bridging a lot of gaps and learn how this American experiment might be able to work because it's one continent full of many different cultures, many different beliefs, many different truths, trauma, wisdom, relational trauma with one another. And it takes understanding the other side to not be aggressive or defensive against the other side. And that's what I get from April's work. I hope you experience that as well. For more information on April's work, please visit NarcissismRecoveryCenter.com. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath and just notice... What's your body doing right now? Sit with it. Let it speak to you. And let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. For more information on my work, including my online courses and healing circles, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, where I share weekly philosophies and resources to help you release stress and trauma from your body so that you can live a happier life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time.